see you all here at Woven Covenant Church. My name is Wayne Park. I'm the lead pastor here at Woven. It's my privilege to serve this new community and to serve this city and to be here. So faithfully yours. Um, glad to be sharing in the last few weeks about prayer. And today is the last sermon of the Practical Prayer Series. I've been hearing good things and good uh, reports about this prayer series it's been helping people. It's been helping me. And uh, we're finishing today with one last prayer that I'd like to teach. But before I go into that prayer, last Sunday we talked about the serenity prayer. And um, for some of us, we may have undertaken to actually memorize the serenity prayer in its entirety. It moved me even this week to hear the serenity prayer used in different contexts and uh, that was very special. I thought your eulogy was, was very beautiful this past week, Paul. And um, I'm thankful that the serenity prayer has helped you and others as well. Have, has anybody here actually memorized it? Has, has gone about, has taken upon yourself to memorize it? Let's recite it together if you've had the chance to memorize it. Don't pull it up on the screen, Frank. Um, let's recite it together by memory if you do remember. They're saying, we need saying too. Okay, let me get God, God, how does it start again? God, grant me the serenity. I've got a couple of different prayers mixing them up. Here we go. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking, as He did, this sinful world as it is, and not as I would have it, trusting that He will make all things right if I surrender to His will, that I may live reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with Him forever in the next. Amen. Very good. Very good, everybody. That was wonderful. It wasn't on the screen, was it? And um, excellent. That's great. It's a, it's a beautiful prayer. Um, today, we're going to conclude. The last prayer of this series is something called a prayer for my enemy. A prayer for my enemy. And so we started, if you can pull that up on the screen, we started with a lot of prayers for ourselves, and then we moved into prayers for our family, prayers for loved ones. And we conclude with a prayer for the other person, the person that you can't get along with, the person that you cannot seem to be in the same room with. A Prayer for My Enemy, written by Father William Menninger. William Menninger is an American Trappist monk. You may have heard of the more um, familiar name Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton was also a Trappist monk. But William Menninger wrote this prayer, which I will recite to you now. And I'm not saying that you have to memorize this one. But I've recited this a couple of times myself, that it's the rhythm has begun become familiar to me. It goes like this, a prayer for my enemy. May you be happy. May you be free. May you be loving. May you be loved. May every fiber of your being resonate to the glory to which God calls you. I want you to be successful in every endeavor, to experience fullness of peace in body and soul, May you know God in all of His goodness. I hope you forgive every transgression because I forgive you with all my heart and soul. 
I want you to know what it means to be a child of God and to experience the glory of possessing the kingdom of God. I pray that you would live and walk in peace and fellowship with all of God's creatures and that every blessing will be yours. I hope goodness and love will show itself in everything that you do and all that is done to you. May you be one with all of God's creation and may you experience the blessings of God's grace for all eternity. I extemporized and changed the words up just a little bit, but the, the essence is there. I don't know for any of you who, as you heard those words, somebody's face or a name flashed across your mind, and in your honest moment, you realize these are difficult words to say for that person. That's the last prayer that I'd like to teach. I'm not asking anybody to memorize it, but I am asking that you just hear it and keep it on hand if there ever is a moment in your life where you, even if it's as simple as the person that cut you off on the highway, a nameless, faceless person, or if it's something that's more deeply rooted and that goes further back, I hope that this prayer is helpful and it helps you as it has helped me. That's the prayer for my enemy. And in order to talk about this subject of forgiveness, I'd like to draw our attention to the last few chapters of the book of Genesis. Now, you don't have to... If you have your Bible, you can pull it up, but it's going to be a little difficult to follow because I'm going to be jumping around Genesis chapter 44 and 45. Genesis chapter 44 and 45 selections is I'm going to be telling the story of Joseph. How many of you are familiar with the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis? Joseph. The story of Joseph goes like this. For those of you that have never heard, this is kind of a... uh, a review of our, of our Bible study class, our Sunday school class. At the end of the book of Joseph, I'm sorry, the book of Genesis, um, the people of Israel from Abraham have grown into this family. They've become a small tribe of, of uh, 12 brothers. Now, at this point, it's just 11. The youngest hasn't been born yet. But this small tribe of 11 brothers, and the youngest of all the 11 brothers, his name is... Joseph. The oldest is Reuben, and then after Reuben is another son named Judah. The story of Joseph goes like this. Being the youngest of 11, he was um, just kind of the tag along. He was a little irritating, and on top of that, he was favored by dad. And as a result, the first 10 brothers really resented him. And out of their resentment, they finally had a moment where they conspired And they decided to sell Joseph into slavery. And selling him into slavery, they shipped him away. He was taken away to faraway Egypt. And as he's sitting in the back of this cart, not knowing where he's going, imagine with the bars, he's saying, please, bring me back home. And he's taken away to Egypt, and there he would undergo different circumstances in his life, and God would be watching out for Joseph. And there in Egypt, Joseph would slowly prosper and climb the ranks and actually become the second most powerful person in the entire kingdom. Now, decades later, fast forward many years later, during a famine, those original ten brothers, those terrible brothers that mistreated him, would wind up on his doorstep knocking and asking for help. There was no food, and they came now, the tables are turned, in a place of need, him solely alone in the position of influence. 
And as they uh, are begging for help, begging for entrance into Egypt, Joseph realizes this is his chance. He can get revenge. And I would go so far as to think Joseph was actually planning something here. And on this note, what I'd like to do is talk about three steps. There will be three fill-in-the-blanks along the way in our talk. Three steps to forgiving someone. I know this sounds trite, as if I can give you three easy steps to solve your life problems. But I think that there will be a little bit of depth, a little bit of bite, a little bit of challenge to these three steps. I turn your attention now to Genesis chapter 44, where this story begins to play out. As the brothers wind up on Joseph's doorstep, and Joseph realizes that he can get his revenge, and what he decides to do is he says, your youngest brother, now Benjamin, your youngest brother, Benjamin, the twelfth son born, will become my slave. And he decides, the youngest decides to enslave the youngest. I guess it's kind of like that in the family pecking order. Older siblings enslave the younger siblings, and so on and so forth. And so he decides to enslave and to mistreat them. And at this, the second oldest, Judah, comes up to him in chapter 44, verse 16, and he says, Lord, what can we say? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. In other words, he's saying God has finally found out our past. The past has caught up with us. What you're hearing in the words of Judah, how can we justify ourselves? God has finally found out our iniquity. The past is caught up. What you're hearing is the voice of a conscience. The voice of a conscience. Most people, um, we live our days, many times I think, I, I don't think many people... Um, certainly out in the world, out, out just out in life, I think we spend a lot more time rationalizing my past mistakes. We spend a lot more time self-defending. But sometimes, every now and then, God will descend and bring a bit of awareness, and the result, the result is some self-reflection, some awareness that I have done wrong in the past. This is the voice of Judah. Judah recognizes his wrong. And the voice of conscience comes forward, and he decides, to, he decides to make a move, not only to protect his youngest brother, Benjamin, but also to pay for his past debts. Now, this is a person with a conscience, and he says, okay, we understand that you want to enslave Benjamin. Fair enough. I guess this was supposed to happen to us. Now take us all as your slaves. All of us will become your slaves, all, all 11 of us. This is the voice of the conscience of Judah. Now, in response to this, in verse 17, Joseph says something. If you look at verse 17, Joseph replies, far be it from me to do this. Far be it from me to do this. And that word, that phrase, far be it from me, appears frequently throughout the Old Testament where it refers to this sense of, no, God forbid. No, it's, don't, don't even mention it. Far be it from me, in the Hebrew, um, that word is halila. 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 I, I don't know colloquially how it, might, how it was used, but it almost has a sense. It's dismissive. Don't worry about it. Forget about it. Halila. It's not a big deal. I just want Benjamin. So there's a bite. There's a bite to what's, what he's saying. Don't worry about it, but I'm still going to take your youngest brother. 
far be it from me to do this. Far be it from me to do this. If I have a stretch of imagination, I think that there is even a little bit, something a little bit more ominous about what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, far be it from me to change my mind. Now, when you hear the words of Joseph, far be it from me to do this, it sounds gracious. It sounds magnanimous. No, I just need just one of you. I don't need 12 of you. But I think that there's another dimension to what Joseph is saying. What he's saying, I think, is far be it from me to stray and to change course I am set on punishing and making sure you experience the true pain of what it's like to lose a youngest brother. The last time you guys lost a brother, you laughed. You waved at you waved at you waved at me and it didn't hurt you. But this time I'm going to make it hurt. Now think of the person, the person that you can't get along with, the person that you might even call your enemy. If you had the power in your hands, would you not stick the knife in and twist it, make it hurt? I think Joseph's intent here, when he says, far be it from me to do this, I think there's a dimension to what he's saying, far be it from me to change my mind. This is going to hurt, and I'm going to make sure it hurts. I'm going to make sure it hurts. The story of Joseph many times is used as a paradigm of forgiveness. But I think we have to let the story tell itself before we jump too quickly to saying this is how we forgive. I don't think the Joseph story is a prescription. I think it's an example. And if we read from the Joseph story a prescription, I think we fail to let the story tell itself. Joseph is, I believe, intent on getting his revenge and making the pain felt. What can we glean from this? What, what, what can we learn from this example? I think this, the first step, the first fill in the blank, the first step towards forgiveness is, guys, we have to, you got to feel it first. You just have to feel it first. Again, I don't think this is Joseph saying, this is what I went through, and therefore, I don't think you can script this stuff. Your story is going to be different from the Joseph story. But wherever or however your, your journey of reconciliation plays out, it must begin with the place of feeling it. You cannot deny that an injustice has been done. It's in recognizing that I'm feeling something, only then can the healing process truly begin. There's two types of people in this world. One type of person will cling to unforgiveness and say, I'm not letting go of this. But that's not what I'm speaking about right now. I'm speaking to the second type of person, the second type of person that says, well, I have no dignity. You can step all over me. I don't feel it. And therefore, all kinds of internal turmoil occurs. I speak to myself in that. Only unless we feel, unless we really truly know what the injustice is, if we allow ourselves, do you hear what I'm saying? If we allow ourselves to feel, only then can we move forward in forgiveness. I would go so far as to say to offer forgiveness prematurely does more harm than good. Imagine if Joseph was being carted away by the slavers and from the back of the cart, he says, well, I forgive you, brothers. I forgive you. Don't worry about it. And imagine how destructive that would be. 
The rest of the story would not have played out the right way if Joseph prematurely forgave. Don't prematurely forgive. It's not right. Feel it first. Feel it first. The story continues in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 44. After Joseph says, far be it from me to change my mind, far be it from me to do this, Judah steps forward and he plays an interceder. Now Judah, once again, was of the 11, 12 brothers. Which one? The second. So this is important. And as the second brother, Judah approaches. So you have two parties. You have the first party, which is the, the, the 11 brothers. Now including Joseph, that's 12. Hopefully I'm not confusing. But you have the brothers and then you have, you know, Second in command to Pharaoh, you have Joseph. Judah steps out from among the brothers, and he steps in the middle as an interloper, as an interceder. And he gets in the middle between the brothers and Joseph. And he whispers in Joseph's ear, and he says very respectfully, May your servant please speak a word. Don't be angry, for you are equal to Pharaoh. He knows that to even step out from among the brothers and to attempt to do something, he, he's risking his life. It's a very dangerous act. And this is where Judah says something that, you know, having read the story many times, having studied it, having actually shared this, preached the sermon a couple of times, it never ceases to move me. The words of Judah in verse 21 Lord Joseph, or obviously he doesn't know his name is Joseph. He doesn't know this is his brother, but he says, Lord, this boy, the lad Benjamin, he can't leave his father because if this youngest one, Benjamin, if he leaves his father, his father would die. And in verse 27, if I can paraphrase in my own words but capture the essence, in verse 27 to 29, he says, My father said to us, If you lose Benjamin, your youngest brother as well, you're going to kill me. If you lose this one as well and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. You'll kill me as well. And then in verse 33, after this moving appeal, Judah concludes, so, almighty sir, please, Benjamin is young. I'm older, I know how to do more things, I've been around the block, I know how to, I know how to, I know how to, I'm a, I'm a useful hand, I'm stronger, here's the deal, take me instead and let the little one go. Take me instead and let the little one go. Please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? These are really remarkable words. They're remarkable words because it shows that it, it, in some ways a foreshadowing of Christ himself. Christ, the good older brother the good older brother that from the party would step out amongst and become one that would stand to defend them. And in the face of injustice, he would take the place 
of the one who would become a slave. He would take our place. For Judah to do that for his brother is remarkable. As Joseph is watching this, I'm wondering what he's thinking because many, many years back, many, many years, the only thing he remembers about Judah is selfish, 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 selfish. Maybe it's because I am an older of two siblings that I understand and that I am aware of this dimension, and, and this, is, this, is, this is where the conscience has to kick in. Have I become aware of my past? Yes, in Judah's case, he has become aware, although for the longest time, he was very incredibly selfish. In the very beginning, when this whole thing went down, when they were beating up their youngest brother, they're giving him wet willies and doing all kinds of terrible things to him, and then they said, let's kill him. Judah, the second oldest brother, steps forward and he says, he says, no, 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 don't kill him. Don't kill him. And Joseph says, really? Thank you. And he says, let's make a profit out of it. So instead of killing him, what Judah says is, let's at least get something out of it. Now, isn't that just like an older sibling? I want to get something out for number one. I'm looking out for number one. It's, it doesn't profit me anything to just harm you. If I'm going to harm you, I want to get something out of it. So it's not that much bolder or more honorable that, that Judah saved his life. It's not so much that he cared about his life. He just wanted to get something out of the equation. That selfishness would continue. This is interesting because when we read the rest of the book of Genesis, most people think, most people think that this is just Joseph's story, that the, the, the book of Genesis, it concludes with Joseph. It doesn't. Joseph is important, but you realize he in some ways in God's plan is just a tool. He is a tool to bring the people of Israel into a safe and stable country, a stable system, the stable system that is Egypt, so that the Israelite people might grow, flourish, prosper in some sense, and even become powerful. It had to happen in the kingdom of Egypt. So Joseph was, 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 was the tool for that to happen. But the very important player in the story is the second oldest brother, Judah, the second oldest brother, Judah, is important. Why? Why? Those of you that took the adult Bible study class, why? Because from the tribe of Judah, from the brother Judah, would come about the line of the kings. And from, for us Christians in the New Testament, from the line of the kings and from Judah's lineage would come Jesus Christ. So the importance of the, 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 the maturity of Judah is vital to the story of Genesis. What happens to Judah and his development and his maturity is crucial, crucial, crucial. Even though he doesn't get as much play as Joseph, Judah has to grow up. Not only does the youngest sibling have to forgive, the oldest one has to atone for his sins as well. The problem is Judah continues to be incredibly selfish. And in the midst of the Joseph story, there is one chapter, I believe it's chapter 38, where you have Judah's selfishness on display. Selfishness on display, and that's another sermon for another time. The story of Judah and Tamar. But all to say that in the intervening years, in the intervening decades, because sometimes forgiveness takes time, God was gracious to both sides and to both parties. God took care of you and God took care of me. And the last time we parted, there were harsh words, but it looks like God has been good to me. 
God has been good to me. Has he been good for you? Yes. Because Judah, over the intervening years, and I, argue, and I believe it took place in chapter 38, he has had some growing up. He's done some maturing. That finally, the most selfish brother in history that I can think of now is actually saying the unthinkable. The most selfish human being that I know is actually blowing my mind because what he's saying is, I'll go. I'll take his place. Let me be the one to suffer. Let the youngest one go. Are you kidding me? That's incredibly selfless. That's incredibly kind. Who are you? The second step to forgiveness, the first one being you have to feel it. If you don't feel it, you will undercut God's work in your life. If you too prematurely offer forgiveness, you're not letting God do anything. The second step, the second step is let God do for me what I cannot do for myself. Let God do. Now there's a sense here of releasing. Let God do what I cannot. Because in these intervening years, oh, if I could just teach that Judah a lesson, God did it. If I could just, he's so wrong, I wish I could just change him. You can't. God can. God did. And in fact, I would even go so far as to say, at this point, Joseph is not capable of forgiveness. I would argue at this point, Joseph does not have it in him. I think he is planning, he is planning fully to make the punishment known. But with those words, God does in Joseph's heart as well what he could not do for himself. God does in Judah what Judah could not do for himself. God does in Joseph what he could not do for himself. Because up to this point, Joseph can't do it. I can't forgive. I still can't forget what they did to me all those decades ago. But finally something cracks and God helps Joseph to do what he cannot do for himself. And we see in, ver in chapter 45, in verse 1, Joseph finally could not control himself before everybody who stood before him. And he, okay, okay, everybody go out. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And he said, it's me. What do you mean it's me? It's me, Joseph. What? You sold me into Egypt, and look what's happened to me. And now they're thinking, what hath God wrought? And he says, no, 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 it's okay. All right? You dumb big brother Judah, you had to just go and say, take me as a slave. You're such an idiot. But okay, I forgive you. Don't be grieved. It wasn't your plan, it was God's. Now, hurry, go back, go back home, get dad. Tell him that we'll take care of him up here as well. Go bring dad back, I'll provide for all of you. And your eyes will see that it is my mouth speaking hurry, hurry up, bring dad down here. Benjamin, come over here. And he falls on Benjamin's neck and he weeps. And Benjamin, he's never met his older brother. 
and he weeps on his neck. And one by one, he kisses all his brothers and weeps on them. And afterwards, they talk. What turned the key in Joseph's heart? I don't think Joseph was able to turn his own key. I think it was Judah. I think it was Judah's words that enabled Joseph to forgive. That's why I don't think that forgiveness is always, it's, I don't think forgiveness is something that you and I own as a commodity that we can give away freely. I think forgiveness is a gift. You have to be given forgiveness. You have to receive grace in order to forgive. And that's the third and last step. Be enabled to forgive. If you can't forgive, that means you're feeling it. But you have to actively let go and let God do in your life and do in the other party's life what He will do. And in the end, forgiveness is something that we are given as a gift. Forgiveness is something that we don't just we don't just give away as a commodity. It's not in our possession. It's a gift that we receive in order to give away. Be enabled to forgive. One commentator puts it like this. It's not Joseph who initiates the reconciliation. Remarkably, it's Judah's moving speech, Judah's speech of self-sacrifice. I relate in closing to both the story of Joseph and Judah. I relate to Joseph's inability to forgive. I relate to Judah's need to grow up and to mature. And in the end, hopefully, you have a little bit of Joseph and a little bit of Judah in you as well. You're both youngest and oldest. You, you need God's touch in your life to enable you to simultaneously mature and also forgive. Be enabled to forgive. Whatever God did over those years in Judah's life, He is now going to do in Joseph's life. I hope that here at Woven, as you worship week in and week out, that God will gradually give you the grace to release, to let go, that God will give you the strength and the equipping to be enabled to forgive. Finally, in review, three steps. Number one, feel it. If you don't feel it, it will abort the whole process of God's work in your life. Secondly, let God do what you can't do. Admit you can't do it. Let God do it for you. And third, be enabled. Be enabled to forgive. As you receive, as you see God at work all around you, be empowered to forgive. In closing, somebody shared a video with me this week that was powerful and it convicted me. And I'd like to conclude with it. And if we can pull that video up on the screen, just a short two-minute video. Watch this. And as you do so, think of yourself either as Judah or as Joseph. Over the past few years, I've been on this journey of writing songs inspired by the real-life stories that people sent to me. 
This one story in particular has had a profound impact on me. It hit me kind of hard. It's about a woman who did the impossible, and it made me ask myself if I could do the same. Renee had four kids. Two of her daughters were twins. Megan was coming home from the beach one night with her best friend when their car was struck by a drunk driver named Eric, a 24-year-old kid. Megan lost her life. Eric killed both girls that were in the car. Renee lost her daughter in an instant. Next thing she knows, she finds herself in a courtroom watching this young man, this 24-year-old man, get sentenced to 22 years in prison. Renee wrote to me and said, I now have a mission that I never would have chosen. What she meant by that is that in the years that follow, she began to travel around to schools and churches and different functions, and she would speak about the dangers of drunk driving. But as the years progressed, she felt like something was missing from her presentations. And that's when God put it on her heart that she had not forgiven this man who took the life of her daughter. And so she reached out and did the impossible. She reached out to Eric in prison and said, I forgive you. The ripple effects of that act of forgiveness are still being felt today. That young man's life was absolutely changed because this woman forgave him. He said, I can't even forgive myself, and she forgave me. Eric said he found his eternal salvation as a result of this act. One by one, all of Renee's family members followed her lead, and they reached out and expressed forgiveness to Eric. So much so that now they describe Eric as part of their family, like a son to Renee. The story doesn't stop there though. Renee went to the courts along with her family and she was able to have Eric's sentence cut in half from 22 years to 11 years. This blew me away. The reason she did it is so that Eric could have a second chance at life and so that he could join her in their presentations. She told me that now she shares not only about the dangers of drunk driving but also about the power of forgiveness. Now, sorry, we had to cut it short there, but with concluding words now, I could just ask you to close your eyes. I think the challenge for all of us is not just to forgive, but also to be forgiven and to recognize that the good older brother is there. He comes from the tribe of Judah, from the second oldest brother, Jesus. He is the good older brother that goes in your place. And so in closing, as Bobby plays the song, actually, that was written by this musician, I want to recite the words of the prayer for my enemy. And I want you to hear these words not only prayed from you for somebody else, but somebody praying it for you, actually, that you also need to receive these words. So hear these words as a prayer prayed for you. May you be happy. May you be free. May you be loving. May you be loved. May every fiber of your being resonate to the glory to which God calls you. May you be successful in every endeavor. Experience the fullness of peace in body and soul. May you know the Lord and all His goodness. May you forgive every transgression. I forgive you with all my heart and soul. May you know what it means to be a child of God. 
May you experience the glory of possessing the kingdom of God. May you live and walk in peace and fellowship with all of God's creatures. May every blessing be yours. May goodness and love show itself in everything that you do and all that is done to you. May you be one with all of God's creation. May you experience the blessings of God's grace for all eternity. God, we receive those words right now as someone has prayed those words over us. We know that, Lord, we are not the only ones who have been wronged, but we are also the wrongdoers. Jesus, we pray, stand on behalf of us now. The sentence is too heavy. The verdict is not in our favor. We need you as a good older brother to do what we cannot do for ourselves. We pray for your small steps or maybe your big steps, the work that you will do in our lives. And we ask that you would enable us today. Free us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org That's www.wovenchurch.org